And we're live. Episode 45, Sports Like MDs. I'm one of the three hosts, Benjamin Vogel, based in Manhattan. We got Dr. Trigio and Dr. Host. Homie Tori. Out in LA. City of Angels. We got Tori. We got Armin. Call Let's him whatever you want. you want. Just don't call me late for dinner. <laughs> don't call me late for SBMDs. We have our first professional football player on today. <laughs> we got sports back. Yes. We got the sun out. We got our first soccer player. So life is pretty good. Pretty, except pretty, pretty except good. for the fact yep. we're in 2020. Yep. But, you know, we're getting through it. Hey, silver linings. Gratitude. We're getting through it, right? <laughs> I think, I truly think everyone is going to come out of 2020 stronger than Resilience, we can baby. even imagine. I mean, I think... Hey, the glass is half full. I think everyone has gone through so much shit on a micro and macro level and they have walked away with so many ideas and thoughts like and, and lessons life lessons on how to just deal with the bullshit that life throws at you because life throws a lot of curveballs and it's all about how you deal with them yeah speaking of curveballs we actually had a question from a fan earlier this week that i want to run by you guys one of our fans wants to know he's talking about performance anxiety what do you guys recommend is the best way to overcome performance anxiety Dr. Trujillo, start with you. Or yeah, I'll, with you. <laughs> um, no, this is a great question. Um, this is a question that I wish I had the answer to back when I played baseball in, in high school because I definitely had a lot of performance anxiety. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing what Dr. Hose has to say, but I'll, I'll just give like one tip um, that I like to talk to a lot of people I come across with, not just my patients, about kind of anxiety, performance anxiety, preventing panic, preventing panic or anxiety symptoms from worsening. So I wanted to talk a little bit about a deep breathing exercise, one simple tool that a lot of people can do. I think that can really help with performance anxiety. And one of the reasons this can be so helpful, even though it sounds so simple, and there's a bunch of different deep breathing exercises you can look up online. I think the most common one is the, the four, seven, eight technique where you inhale for four seconds and you hold it at the top for seven seconds and you exhale slowly for eight seconds. Four, seven, eight, you do this for about a minute and you can see really good results from this. And the reason why deep breathing is so helpful for anxiety, situations that provoke anxiety is because when you're anxious or when you panic or when you have performance anxiety, if you're a baseball player and you're playing second base and the ball gets hit to you and your, your heart starts beating out of your chest, it's almost like your body goes into fight or flight. So the, we've talked about the fight or flight system before. That's essentially when your sympathetic nervous system takes over and a lot of hormones get triggered into your body and your heart rate goes up. You start to get shaky. Your voice changes a little bit. You, you start to get sweaty. Sometimes you, your anxious thoughts start begin to cycle. You, sometimes you have impending sense of doom. Your skin may get flush. You have all these different physical changes that go along with the thoughts and the feeling of anxiety. And the reason why, and when you're in fight or flight, it's almost like the primal part of your brain is, is, is taking over. You're, you're no longer able to think with the, the higher levels of thinking the frontal lobe. So one specific way that you can break that cycle and intervene is through your breathing. You can't tell your heart rate to slow down. I can't just be like, all right, slow my heart rate down. You can't do that directly. But one way to do that is actually by taking deep breaths. If you're able to do like the four, seven, eight technique, or take about a minute of doing really slow, deep breathing, that physiologically can lower your heart rate. So that is the one thing you can do specifically 
to get out of the fight or flight system, to decrease your anxiety, to prevent that cycle from prevent the panic and anxiety from getting worse. And it's actually going to physically calm down those physical manifestations of anxiety. So that can be extremely helpful for anyone who has performance related anxiety, but it's something you have to practice. You have to do this every day. You have to do deep breathing when you're not anxious in order to, to develop expertise in it, just like anything, you have to become an expert at this. And then you'll be able to do it at the drop of a hat. And it's been shown to lower the heart rate at least 10 beats. So I think for this individual who's asking about performance anxiety, one thing you can start practicing is, is doing these deep breathing exercises. And then you're going to have better control over your anxiety, over the physical manifestations of anxiety. You're going to be able to get yourself out of the fight or flight system. So I, those are some exercises I wish I did back in the day when I played sports, uh, but it's something you have to practice every day and, and you'll get to a point where you can really decrease your anxiety through just deep breathing. It's a great one, man. That's a really good one. And I think it's something that just about anybody could probably participate in. You know, I, I maybe wouldn't do it if I had COPD or, you know, something like that, but COVID-19. Um, COVID, yeah. I, I don't know if I'd be on the vent uh, in the ICU doing it, but no, I mean, you know, it, it's really, it's great. It, it, it feels so good to do that for a couple of minutes. It just really helps you alleviate that tension. Um, and it's, uh, it's something you can really control. You know, and that's the most important thing is you can control it. You can do it just about anywhere. No one's really going to necessarily know you're doing it. So, you, you know, you don't, you don't have to look weird um, necessarily. You know, you can kind of just be silent, um, you know, be to yourself, be still. and. Um, you know, while you're on the train, you know, while you're, you know, driving to work, you know, while you're walking to this up to the stage, um, you know, there's a reason you see athletes yeah. do this before they take a free throw shot, right? Before they get into the step into the batter's box, take one deep breath. You know, it's it's just it's a it's a cue for a lot of people to to get them in that calm space yeah. to distract them from their thoughts. And it's rhythmic, right? It's rhythmic, and and so it's something you can follow, something that you can kind of concentrate on. And, um, you know, and I think that's really the key when you're talking about uh, alleviating stress and tension is you want to, you want something that, that you can follow along with that you can kind of get in sync with, you know, so things that are rhythmic and that's why, you know, our, our breathing is, is something that could be really helpful. Another one that could be helpful, I think about is muscle relaxation and controlled muscle relaxation because, you know, we store a lot of tension in our, our muscles, you know, our upper and lower limbs and uh, and it makes sense too because when you think about the way we're wired you know in terms of the nerve network um, you know that kind of uh, branches off the spinal cord and you know helps us walk and, and use our arms and our you know, hands and our fingers is you know it's it's like branches of a tree uh, and it runs through the network runs through our muscles um, you know largely and so stress, which, you know, is ultimately uh, a form of anxiety, you know, it's stored anxiety. Um, you know, we feel that physically often in our muscles, you know, back soreness and, you know, you know, just spasms and you know, contractions and, and so forth that we have and, may, and they cause discomfort. And we want to be able to ultimately alleviate that in order to kind of feel like ourselves again, you know, feel relaxed. Um, and so we can control some of the, that tension and uh, enable that to be released from our muscles, just like we can, you know, from our, 
you know, our airway. And so we, we can do this by essentially, you know, you inhale, you know, so the breathing thing works for this as well. And while inhaling, choose a muscle, any muscle, right? Let's say your hands, you know, is, is something that you might feel a little jittery. You can control your hand muscles by, you know, just contracting your hand, um, you know, uh, kind of making a fist. And, you know, you can contract it for maybe five to 10 seconds. Just really hold it very, very tightly, like not so tightly that you're in, you know, discomfort, but, you know, get a nice good grip for about five to 10 seconds. And then that's at the top of the breath, right? At the top of the breath is at your, your strongest grip. And then you want to exhale uh, at the top of that breath. And while exhaling, slowly exhale, again, maybe five to 10 seconds, you want to slowly release the grip, right? So you want to make that grip maybe over the course of five to 10 seconds while you're inhaling. And at the top of that breath, you know, slowly exhale over maybe another five to 10 seconds while also gradually releasing the grip and, and then, you know, having a, you know, opening your hand and just feel that, that tension just kind of, you know, release. Um, and, you know, honestly, the, you want to get into a rhythm, into a sync and, the more gradual, really the longer that you, you pause and, and gradually release the tension on the exhale, the more you're going to be able to, to push out, you know, and it, it's a focus. It's a focus exercise. So I would say maybe five to 10 seconds on the inhale, you know, while you're contracting your hand and then maybe 10 to 15, 10 to 20 seconds on the exhale while you're releasing that tension, you know, and, and what you can actually do to make it even more interesting over time, what you get good at that is you can do what we call progressive muscle relaxation. So you start at the top or at the bottom and, you know, think of a muscle at the very top, let's say, you know, your, your forehead muscles, right? You have muscles all over your face, all over your body from head to toe, your forehead muscle, you can contract, you know, maybe by lifting your, your eyebrows up and do the same thing, you know, five to 10 seconds on the inhale, you know, your tightening and you know, contracting those muscles and then slowly relaxing those muscles on the exhale, maybe over 10 to 20 seconds and, and you'll feel the tension release. And um, it's something you can just gradually work your way down from head to toe. You know, the muscles are like in segments, you, know, you have your eyelid muscles, you know, your muscles around you, your, you know, your cheeks and your smile. Uh, you can go down into, you know, your, shoulder muscles, your chest, um, back and, you know, down into your hips and thighs. I mean, you know, and just go down and, 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 you know, eventually your whole body will feel much more. Relaxed. Yeah. It's a great, I, I use this quite a bit cause I hold a lot of tension in my neck. So after a long day, I'm, my neck is stiff and sore. So you don't really realize how much tension you're holding in your muscles until you do something like progressive muscle relaxation where you purposely flex and then relax and you're like, Oh, that's what a relaxed muscle feels like. So it just gives you better, yeah. better body awareness. Um, and better awareness overall, um, and better control over these kind of physical manifestations of anxiety, like you talked about. So that's great. And I, I'm excited for our interview today with David Cotterill, former English Premier League soccer player. He talks a lot about how routine is key. Oh, yeah. So these two exercises, Arm and I talked about deep breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, implement those into your routine. 
And if you have those as part of your routine, you can only build from there. You're only going to have better control of your thoughts, emotions, and anxieties. So yeah, stick around for this interview because you're going to learn a lot more techniques on how to handle or how to become more mentally fit. Absolutely, man. It's so cool too because, you know, it's our first soccer player or football as he's going to teach us. And even more interesting to see a guy that was a professional athlete, you know, had you know, serious challenges, you know, apparently even from childhood with his mental health, pushed through, you know, and still played at a high level and performed at a high level and, you know, was in big time championship level games, you know, against the likes of, you know, Ronaldo and, oh yeah, uh, you know, th these kinds of things. The final sure. four at the Euros 2016 playing for Wales national team. It's amazing, you know, and, and to have a guy like that here uh, with us is amazing. But then even more incredible is that, you know, he's sharing his journey, his, you know, kind of mental health journey. And now uh, in this sort of um, really cool altruistic, you know, sort of way, he is kind of giving back to the sports community and football and soccer by creating this, this organization that is really dedicated to similar things to what we're dedicated to, Tori, like sports and mental health. And it's really cool. So excited for this. Oh, yeah. And he opens up a lot about uh, his, his personal struggles. He talks about his struggles with alcohol addiction and having self-harming, suicidal thoughts, suicide attempts. So I'm, I'm glad he took the time, was able to become vulnerable with us on today's podcast and we're all on the same page with regards uh, to trying to end the stigma and i'm happy to have him on today here we go let's do it All right, what's going on everyone? Welcome back to episode 45. Today we have a very special guest who is no stranger to success. He made his professional football debut and we're talking the real football in 2004 with Bristol City and has been a consistent force ever since. While I was playing Madden as a teenager, our guest spends his teenage years representing Wales playing for the under 19 and under 21 team. He was voted to the Professional Footballer Association Team of the Year in 2012 and has recently started the Crystal Matrix, an online mental health course. Everyone, please welcome David Cotterell. How are you doing today? I'm very good. How are you? I'm doing well. Before we start off, we got a question for you that we asked all of our guests. What is your hype song? <sighs> That's a good question. Um, I'll tell you what, I'd, probably Biggie, Juicy. Oh. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. That's a great one, man. Jesus. Wow. That is a classic. But I tell you what, I've been, I've I've gone back to a few classics and I've I've been listening to Nas if I rule the world lately, and wow. that's just getting me going. Man. That might yeah, that's that's right up there. Yeah, we're off to a good start. Yeah, it gets me happy. <laughs> Love it. Nice. Juicy, you can't go wrong. Wow. So last week but last week um our guest said Led Zeppelin. Okay. Which was a not not a wrong answer, but definitely an interesting <laughs> there answer. There are no wrong answers. Um, so, Dave, thank you so much for joining our show today. So, um, we've talked before the show, and you've suffered from mental health issues since you were a teenager. Yep. And you've notably battled depression, suicidal thoughts, and anxiety during your professional career. So, was there ever a sports psychologist or psychiatrist on staff, or 
were you more or less alone with this? How did the team approach this issue? Um, I get asked that question quite a lot. And so when you're a professional football player or a soccer player, whatever you guys call it, um, we were always preparing what we were performing like on the pitch rather than how we were getting treated off the pitch. And so there was so much focus in terms of, right, how can we get the, get the win of the matches? How can we be the best performers on the pitch? And we didn't really used to get looked after, I felt, as a, as a human being off the pitch. And, I, I, you know, noticeably when I went to the Euros with um, Wales in the European Championship, we were... You know, we had an amazing staff and, and people there and were representing your national team at a huge level. Um, and we, again, we had a performance psychologist who would, who would look at how you're performing on the pitch. But again, I just didn't feel that we had the right support off it. And that's no fault of their, their own. That, that was very new to us being um, a small country and, a, and we've not qualified for those major championships for a, a long period of the time. Um, it was just something that, I really suffered with and I, I didn't think that I could trust anyone to go and speak to because I didn't want to jeopardize my place in in the football clubs or, or my team to go and speak to a manager or anyone else there so I kind of just um, just got on with things really. It's a difficult position to be in um, struggling with um, yeah. mental health issues and not necessarily having support from your your workplace or your team um, so did you kind of just try to fight it on your own or did you find other outlets to kind of help with those issues? So when I um, was very young, I would start, I would, you know, um, self-harm from around about 13 to 14. So I'd, I'd hit my football boots, which would obviously be sharp studs. Um, and then I'd hit them across my shins and, and I'd get away with that because when you're playing football and you're training week in, week out, you're always getting contact. So you're always cutting yourself. You're doing this and doing that. So, if anyone would ask me, I would be like, well, no, that's just from a tackle um, when I was training or when I was playing games. So um, I was just I was just always searching for, for perfection more than anything else, I think. And even till just recently, I would still always strive for that. But um, as we all know, there's no such thing as perfection. Yeah, David, uh, yeah, man, that's amazing that you would share that with us. And we really appreciate appreciate that. What, what kind of... Um, I don't know what what did that do for you? You know the the self harm was that all just because just of how are you feeling on the inside or or was there there's something that you got from from that type of behavior? Um, I think it was just it was uh, you know a lot of it comes down to perfection because I wanted to be a professional football player from a very young age. I think the pressures that I got put on me from at home, um, especially from my my father, because. You know, most kids these days, they go out and they're teenagers, they have fun with their friends, they go out drinking or they go and do these certain activities. And I'm not saying drinking is, is good for any teenager. I'm just saying that's what my friends were doing. Sure. And I just, you know, I, I had to be in by a certain time. Or if not, I was training um, with Bristol City from a very young age. So the pressures were, were already on, I would say, from, I, I'd probably say from the age of six or seven, the pressure was pretty much on for me um, because I had a given talent to be a professional footballer. And my dad didn't, didn't want me to be, you know, like maybe family members or people around me to just make sure I didn't give up that dream. And so yeah. I think that just come from, stemmed from then, then. So I was always looking for that perfection. And when I did actually hit the studs against my shins, I would just get that anger out of me, um, you know, and, and, and just kind of like a, re a release, so, um, so to speak. I see. 
that's that's really helpful um, to hear that. A lot of times, we do hear that like the self injurious behaviors. A lot of times, a way to get out some sort of emotional pain into more of a physical pain, um, but mostly it just has an outlet. So I appreciate you sharing that. I'm interested in, in hearing more about the whole kind of soccer industry or football industry in America is lacking compared to how they have it out in the UK. So what is it like being like handpicked at six or seven years old to be on essentially groomed to become a a professional soccer player. Like you mentioned, you had so much pressure at that age. And I imagine you're right. Like at six or seven, a lot of us are, we're running around outside aimlessly doing a bunch of, I don't know, TPing houses or whatnot, but you're, you're pretty much, uh, is it kind of like a job at six or seven? Tell us a little bit more about that, like the structure and how it was kind of growing up playing soccer. Um, yeah. So I would always play football in the street, you know, wherever I was um, with my friends, and then I would always play with like the older kids. So I had like an older brother. So he would always take me out and about with my, my friends, play football. But then I, I first joined my first team when I was six. Um, and so that was just like a local team. And then I got picked up by Bristol City when I was 10. So then from the age of 10, you're literally um, fighting for a contract every year. So, you know, kids are fighting rejection from a very young age and getting told, you know what, you're actually, you're not very good at this game or you're not good enough. You're not meeting the standards that we set. And so you can imagine um, the impact that could take on, on their mental health and how they're struggling with that because from their parents, they probably got told how amazing they were or this and that, or even the other end of the scale where if they weren't good enough and then you have like a, a daddy who's really, really strict and is you can imagine they're probably not just getting at that football club, they're then getting it when they get home as well. So the pressures were really, really on. I think a lot of people always say, you know, you live in the dream, you're doing this and that, but it was a lot of dedication. You know, when in any sport, any athletes, when, for example, when you see Tiger Woods, when he was um, very young, when he made his um, mark on the sport, everyone, and you know, Lionel Messi, they always say, oh, he's an overnight success. They're not overnight successes. They've been, they've been practicing for 10, 12 years before, to get to that point or fighting for their whole lives to get to that level. So it's quite similar to myself where I, I was practicing very hard to, to get to a certain level and to be a professional player. Did you feel like there was anyone you could talk to about how you were feeling? Um, no, I don't think so. Not at that time because my dad was very strict. So if I would go and speak to him about something, then he would just tell me to go upstairs to bed, you know, because he, he was just like from a, a, I think he was just from a generation where you just got on with things and that's it. You didn't really express your feelings. It's only till recently that, you know, all over the world that we express our feelings a, a lot more than before. Um, whereas, you know, I, th I even look, look at recent times, really, when you look at Will Sp Smith and what they're showing on Instagram and, and Kanye West and they show these sort of things it's like the whole of social media thrives off people in pain and being rejected so I, I look at it from that perspective where people are making these memes or whatever you call them and making fun of these guys when they don't really understand exactly what is going on so from that point of view again that just goes to show that we're not coming that far in terms of mental health because when a guy is in bits like will smith where he's showing emotion where he was upset with something we were all happy to take the piss out of him sorry sorry if i'm swearing by the way i normally swear a lot so I've, I've, uh, <laughs> um no it's all good now <laughs> oh no worries but hey make it plain <laughs> make it plain feel free well we I really appreciate the fact that uh, just looking through your Instagram page, you're obviously fighting to help end the stigma and kind of what you're just talking about kind of is, 
I, I saw that post you did with the iceberg and it's like what fancy or what you see is about like what you see about the iceberg underwater. Yeah. But people don't see everything beneath the surface, all that hard work that goes into it, all the pain, all the struggles. So we really appreciate you being an advocate um, to end the stigma of mental health. And I think being a professional athlete like you, it's, it's great to have someone who who's experienced all this and can, can kind of talk the talk. So we're happy to have you on. Thank you very much. Yeah, David. So I've, I've noticed that you've mentioned in the past that you're confident that you're not the only footballer suffering from mental health issues. In fact, you've stated that footballers all over the world not only suffer from mental health issues that affect their performance, but just like you, they don't feel comfortable and they won't open up to their teammates, coaches, or anyone on their team out of fear of losing their place. So first, why do you think that is? And second, I want, I want to hear your thoughts on the difference between how the UK and the US approach mental health and these issues. Yeah. Well, to be quite honest, I don't really know how they... I remember when I went to New, New Jersey and New York, um, I went traveling around there with some work roughly around 18 months ago, 18, 19 months ago. And that's actually a month before I checked into rehab because I was fighting for addiction as well. So one of your questions earlier was, how did I um, help later on in life? I was practically self-medicating because I was drinking when I felt lonely or when I felt a certain thing, I would go and drink and take away that pain for a little short while. Um, so, so when I did visit the U S then, um, one of my friends said that they actually didn't have anything in place for the MLS to do, to do with mental health or they didn't have an organization. So, wow. so in the, the UK, we have the PFA, which is, and the FA, which is an organization, that is, which is a player's, um, association where they look after you. Um, not to a great deal, I personally believe. I think there could be still a hell of a lot of work to be done, which has been very publicized, my views on that, and a lot of other people's views as well. Um, I still feel that there's a lot needs to be done. Players, I, I guess, they, the ones that I've spoken to kind of say what I say, is that they don't want to jeopardize by putting food on the table for their children because ultimately that's their job. So if they show a sign of weakness that they believe, which is speaking about mental health, which, we, which I believe is, is not, um you know a manager might not play them or they'll move them on and and so i i think they just keep their head down to make to make a living for themselves to follow their dreams and make sure that they don't get you know cut and and released from that club why do you think it's been so difficult for these organizations to to embrace mental health um to be quite honest because i feel that most of the organizations are people who have been there for many years so they have like dinosaurs to like dinosaurs there they don't they don't really have fresh ideas they they're still in the olden times where right you're a football player just get on with things and i don't think there's fresh ideas to take the game forward in that sense i think we like the idea i personally believe all over the world we like the idea of a tick tick box exercise we like to show what whoa this is what we do in the company this is what we do for athletes mm -hmm. but that's just on the outside but ultimately when it comes to the crunch we do fuck all because we don't really get to do, looking after these people in the right way we just tick a box tick a box say oh yeah well, this is what we do blah, blah 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 but we don't ultimately help that individual get better do you feel like the the, the organizations kind of look at these issues as being more distractions and and just an expense that they're not wanting to have to deal with well I, yeah i do believe that i think it's the same as in terms of um 
the racism side of things as well. It's just kind of like we we put those exercises on as well. And in um, the football organizations come in, we have like slideshows. We talk about racism. And anyone want to talk about racism? No. Next one. Anyone want to talk about mental health? No. Next one. And it's just kind of like the same thing. We wow. we keep fighting over the same shit all the time. It's like right, we're going to do this better. And then we wait, and then something else happens. We're always we're always reacting to stuff rather than being proactive, whether it's mental health or, or anything else. And it's and everyone keeps saying, "Oh, we sh- we shouldn't be talking about this and that." We do because no one fucking does anything. We talk about it for a month or so, and then it's forgotten about. <laughs> do you think it has anything to do with um, the stigma surrounding mental health? Yeah, I do. I think um, a lot of players feel the same way that I do. Um, I can't answer for them, obviously, because. I can only answer for myself, but I think they don't want to jeopardize again their their contracts. They don't want to jeopardize follow. They've worked extremely hard to get to that level. They don't want to manage and not playing him on a weekend or playing him in match time because they think that he's not mentally not right. Ultimately, when I was feeling really low with my mental state, when I tried taking my own life on two or three occasions, I would I didn't want to say anything because I, that was my my release was playing a football match. That's the only time I felt free is when I was playing. So you didn't want to have to risk having that taken away from you. I, I love hearing the passion. Um, I can I could hear it when you talk about this subject. Um, and I think what we've talked to a lot of different um, directors of mental health programs for the NFL and the NBA. And just over the past one or two years, they're putting together these programs. We often ask them and we ask ourselves, is it just they're putting it out there to just let people know, hey, we have mental health programs. What specifically are, are these mental health programs? Are they the correct mental health programs that are actually helping the individuals, not just trying to kind of put up something shiny to check a box, kind of like what you said. Um, So I think ultimately, I think we're on the same page with regards to, and eventually they'll see the light when you have someone who, when you have a good mental health program, mental fitness program within your team, within your organization, that's going to result in better performance. And at the end of the day, I think ultimately that's what teams want. They want to perform better in order, order to make more money at the end of the day. Um, and I think it's just about being able to align the vision, knowing that if you take care of your players, mental health, mental fitness, that's going to help with performance. That's going to help with your team, with your company, with your organization. So I think that that's where I think we're all in agreement with regards to that. That's what I just think what you've just touched on there, though, you're talking about huge franchise, you know, like the NFL um, and, you know, MLS is is, is obviously more it's, it's newer compared to obviously the um the nfl the nba and you're talking about huge organizations there which i just can't understand why they've not been in put put in place for many years before us you know yeah. yeah did you when as you progress through your years playing um i know you played in the english premier league a couple times uh, as you went to different clubs did did things change over your playing career i know you're still playing now in your 30s have you noticed mental health care or fitness being more emphasized again i feel um don't get me wrong it's some i've visited quite a few premier league clubs and and wolves wolverhampton wanderers they stand out for me because when i went to visit them they had all these amazing programs put in place where they educate the 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 guys coming through there so whether it's to to do with um social media how do you deal with social media where you're getting um shit off the fans where they abuse you on on social media where you have trolls on there how do you deal with you know finance in terms of the amount of money you're getting given from a young age and and, and mental health and so on so they educate um their guys uh, 
on different subjects, which I find is amazing. I don't, not every club is, is like that and forward thinking where I had, I did a live call on my Instagram, live Instagram the other week and I was speaking to a friend of mine and he was my teammate and he's now a coach. And I asked the question, I said, if someone suffers with mental health, where do they go? And he, he said, he, before that, he said, you know, it's a lot better now from when I was playing. I said, well, where did they go and, who did they go and speak to? And he couldn't give me an answer because it, nothing, <laughs> no, nothing changed. So oh that makes me think, well, you know, again, it's like what we just said, it's a tick box exercise where they, on the outside, it looks like they're doing something, but in-house, they're doing nothing. David, if, if, uh, if you had the opportunity to create the ideal mental health program, mental health treatment program for athletes playing football, athletes you know, in, a, in, in that sport. What are the, would you say, are the most essential things that a program like that should have to make sure that they're creating an adequate program for those athletes? I think it's really important to have that network around you because I don't, I personally don't believe it's just about educating the athlete. I think it's about educating the parents and people around them because Ultimately, I think you have a lot of mental health problems where you um, are having pressures from at home. The trauma is from at home and it then relates onto, onto the child who then becomes the athlete. So you're not getting to the root of the, of the problem because you're then going into your environment and work and you're happy, but then you go home to see your, your dad or, or your mum and, and they're causing problems with whatever problems they have, which then relates onto you. So I think it's about creating that whole thing from educating younger people whether it's to do it in schools i'm just a true believer in that you need to educate younger people about racism and mental health during school because we let's face it we teach we teach children for most stuff that we don't even use when we leave school not that not what we well, not what we use so i i'm a true believer in about educating from a very young age even before they get to that elite athlete stage Absolutely. I can't, I couldn't agree more. I'm a, a child and adolescent psychiatrist myself. So I know the importance of trying to get in there at the ground stages to really help an individual grow and mature. Um, I want to, I wish there was cognitive behavioral therapies implemented in like middle school and high school programs, um, along with well, that's, that's math what, and so on and so forth. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we've, I've, my, we mentioned earlier, like we've, um, my business partner, who's a, a psychotherapist, we've got all those behaviors in our crystal matrix on the online courses, awesome. but, but it's quite, so it's quite crazy, but we brought these courses out and we've um, reduced the prices a huge amount and, and they're only 24 pounds, but they're amazing. And I've done them myself. And some people say, oh my God, that's 24 pounds. But you're happy to go and buy a bottle of wine to drink rather than, you know, invest in your own self care, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And that bottle of wine is only going to help you one night versus yeah, exactly. doing, and I, I, I checked out the crystal matrix program a little bit, a lot of CBT in there. Uh, you talk about the inner child, you do like a personality per portfolio. And I also saw smarter goals yeah. is something you guys. Yeah. So yeah, I, I you've, you kind of touched on, your own uh, personal struggles with mental illness and addiction. I, I know mental illness carries its own stigma, but addiction also carries a strong stigma as well. Tell, tell us a little bit about um, how you've dealt with that. Um, yeah, so I checked into rehab because I was, with my addiction of drinking, I was literally getting pissed all the time. I was, I was having you know three or four bottles of red wine, then I was going into train the next day, and, and it was just getting more and more. And 
I was trying to take my own life. Then I'd go into train the next day and guys would say, oh, how are you this morning? I'd be like, oh, I'm fine. How are you? But literally hours before I was trying to take my own life. So I needed to get on top of that shit because I have three children. I didn't want them to be without a dad. So I kind of used that as a motivation to, to get me better. So I then checked into rehab. And when I checked into rehab, people always assume people check into those places because they're down and out. They're literally, they're nothing or they're this and that. That's, that's a stigma that's surrounded with rehabs. But I knew that I had to help myself because a lot of people talk the talk and say, oh, I'll help you, blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, it always comes down to yourself. If you want it enough, then you, you're going to do it, I believe. Um, so, so I checked into rehab. I was drinking a, whole, a shitload and now I'm... Well, in August, I'll be 18 months sober. Congrats. Wow. Congrats. Congratulations, man. Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. Do, um, you know, obviously this podcast is all about you know, athletes and mental health, mental, mental illness. Um, do you, as a professional athlete, feel that you know, folks like yourself in that industry, like professional level athletes, high level elite athletes, that you guys maybe have some unique or more distinctive issues that may actually make you more likely to have uh, mental health challenges? Um, yeah, I think so. I think the challenge is that, you know, this, I always say, you know, you're playing in front of 40, 50, 60,000 people. And if you're in a, uh, you miss a penalty, for example, you get abuse and you get, and then it doesn't stop there. You then go home on social media, getting abused like constantly nonstop. And it's just no no way for me. I remember when I played when I was playing for Birmingham, I went out with my two children for food, and this one guy came up to me and said, oh, "You're a fucking disgrace. You shouldn't be out." But I said, "Oh my!" I was so rude. I was like, "Well, I was rude." I said, "Get the fuck away from me when I'm having food with my children. You don't come up to me when I'm with my children." And um, and then he was like, and I, he said, "You shouldn't be out. You lost the game yesterday." I said, "Well, we don't set out to lose. No one wakes up in the morning saying, do you know what? I'm gonna fuck up today.'" I'm going to be an arsehole. No one does that. Um, and so he just came up to me and I said, oh, what do you do? He said, oh, I'm, I'm a postman. So I said, oh, well, if you don't deliver the mail on time, does that mean you're not allowed out to have food with your children? He didn't know what to say then. I said, this is my job. I don't come up and say things about your job. So then he just walked off then. But that was the right way to handle it. That was, that was, that was great, man. Yeah, it was a good educational moment for that guy. Yeah, if I had a drink, it might have been a different, different <laughs> ball game, you know? No doubt. Uh, David, David, so you just build, building off playing with pressure. Um, I noticed one quote you said describing the pressure professional athletes face as footballers are on a roller coaster ride. One minute you're putting one in the top corner and then the next you're missing a penalty. So I'm just curious, what do you think are the personality traits that help someone thrive under these situations? What makes someone good or bad under these situations? And more importantly, what mental exercises that you've tried or your teammates may have tried have worked for these types of situations and kind of put your head in the game um i think i've seen a lot of um athletes where they go out out onto the pitch with where it's be um no fans in the stadiums or they go down different days where they visualize what they're going to be doing in the games and in the situations i would visualize that but i would visualize that maybe when i was driving my car but players sometimes Sometimes like to go down, have a look at the pitch, visualize them self taking a penalty or taking whatever they do during that game. Um, but then also, there's nothing like practice. Um, if you're practicing in those environments, you're doing it day in, day out, you know you're capable of achieving these things. So if you miss, you miss. It's like 
Michael Jordan would always say, you know, he's famous obviously for the um, for that shot that he made, but he would openly say, I missed thousands and thousands of shots. Um, so you have to fail to then succeed. So you have to just keep believing what you do and, and back yourself. And also, you know, practice makes perfect, as they say, but, you know, you have, they practice for so long, they should be ultimately used to those pressures. I used to thrive off that. I used to, that's what I would always say. When I used to take the set pieces, like corners and penalties, when people used to call me a bald fucker, I used to love that shit. Nice. <laughs> I've, on its complete side note, I've heard and I see, it is very dirty on the... Um, on the line during during corner kicks, and everyone lines up or for those or for those free kicks. There's like a lot of foul play over there. I see like a lot of low low belts. I do you know what I used to love that because I think that's part of the fun because the crowd wanted to come and put you off because you know they want their team to win and I I like that side of things where you have a bit of a joke and but then ultimately if, when I. When I used to get that abuse and I scored the goal, I just make sure I oh, let them know that we're winning. <laughs> probably amazing. So I actually, I have a question to go back on uh, something we were talking about earlier. Uh, this is more, this question is more for the, our fans who are listening that may or may not realize they have a drinking problem or an addiction problem. When did you realize you had an addiction problem? Was there a pivotal moment or was it a realization or was it gradual over time? Did someone have to tell you? And you mentioned that your kids were the driving force of checking you in, of, of having yourself check into the clinic, but was there anything else that kind of motivated you? So just for our fans, like what advice do you have on getting help and seeking help, but also acknowledging they need help? Um, yeah, so firstly, I was, I knew I had a drinking problem because I just, I used to love it. As soon as I used to finish training, I'd just go home and drink. And then when I was in my house, I was, getting obsessed with having decanters where I'd let my wine breathe in the, the right temperature and, and so on. I would, but then I just couldn't stop. I could never go, I, I could never ever go out. Say for example, us four guys met up in New York or LA. I could never go and have one or two drinks and go home. I always had to leave being pissed. I couldn't, I could, I wasn't, I wasn't happy with the night ending so early, you know? Um, so I would, I never would know when to stop. And I was then starting to drink and do stupid things. I take my own life. I was smashed at my own house. But the advice that I would give to someone is that a lot of people have this perception of an alcoholic is, is being someone who um, has a bottle of vodka next to his bed and in the middle of the night he's waking up and drinking. There's all different forms of alcoholism. So, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not drinking every day, that you have a problem with alcohol. I had a problem with alcohol just with the way that I'd perform and how I wanted it to work on me. I was always smashing my house up. I was trying to take my own life. I was just a completely different human. I was, um, but any help, I would recommend them going to Alcoholics Anonymous, which helped me. Um, and, but that's the hardest part is when you're with someone as an addict and you're trying to get them to realize they have a problem and they're helpless over their addiction is very difficult for, to get them to realize that until ultimately they realize that themselves, they won't listen to a fucking word anyone says because my ex-wife was telling me for years and years, I was like, yeah, whatever, I'm, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me, blah, blah, blah. But until I wanted it for myself and realized it, I am the problem, then you never change. David, you mentioned that you, you recognized early in life, as early as you know, six, seven years old, that you had these perfectionist tendencies. Um, yeah. And you've mentioned that you've had the benefit of therapy, you know, and, and various you know, counseling programs and, and sort of group 
therapy programs like Al Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, have you had opportunities to explore why you had those perfectionist tendencies, uh, even from such an early age? Yeah, I think it, you know, I have a very close relationship with my dad and he's an alcoholic as well. Um, cause he's, he's just a functioning alcoholic. He does it a lot better than me, but, um, you know, he would get very angry in his younger days, but later on in life now, he just, he's chilled. He's, you know, he can have a drink and, and be happy. But I think, um, I think it'd probably stem from him where I'd always have to practice. If I was a minute late from when I was being out with my friends, I would soon know about it. And then I'd get sent to bed or I'd, like certain things would just creep in. And when I was playing it from a very young age, just six, seven years of age, if I had a shit game, he would tell me all the way home, you're what are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And it's just from a very young age, it was just kind of like, I want to be a footballer, but I need to have, you need to have fun as well. I always believe you need to let, children need to follow their dream not for the parents the parents have had their chance to have the dream don't put the pressure let the kids have fun and enjoy their life and let them be what they want to be love it thank you yeah so i've noticed an issue that you discussed a lot was when you played on the road and you were away from your family you were kind of left alone with these disturbing thoughts and what you would do to distract yourself is play with legos and you've recently started cooking to just distract yourself. So number one, is that, would you say that's effective? And would you recommend finding some sort of hobbies for any of our fans listening that may suffer from the same disturbing thoughts as you have? Or do you, have you found any more effective strategies to kind of distract yourself from those thoughts? I think probably the, the three things that are, uh, I think routine is key in anything in life, whether you're an addict or not an addict or with mental health problems or not, I think routine is, is definitely the key. Um, because I think exercise as well and the eating better, you know, when we have, when we have shit foods, we feel like shit. It's no, it's no magic formula. You know, when you eat better, you feel a lot better. Um, and so exercise, I feel is key. Definitely the routine. I meditate now. I don't do Lego as much as I used to, but I do definitely believe that, you know, that's amazing. Um, I do, I do cook a, a little bit more than before, but, um, I used, I definitely feel that Lego is definitely, a, it's a great tool. Are you going to tell us what your specialty is cooking wise? Um, to be honest, I just cook whatever's going on, but I do, well, you don't have Sunday roasts in the US, do you? You don't even know what they are. You look at me thinking, what is this guy in a No. So Sounds like a barbecue. Way, but <laughs> I do love barbecue food. I'm, so we've had like a decent summer so far, so it's it's not usual for the UK. But the barbecue's been on on a lot. Sounds pretty fun. But I do like I like making you know curries or you know any like healthy diff dishes or anything of this. That's awesome. I, I appreciate the fact that you you touched on routine and how routine is is ultimately really key. We talk a lot about how, just controlling what you can control. So if you can start the day off by doing some small little routine as easy as getting up, taking a shower, doing 10 minutes of stretching, meditating, going for a walk. If you can start out, that's start out your day with like a solid routine like that, that creates momentum for your entire day. And you can kind of go throughout your day, um, kind of feeling more stable and more controlled. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about, I guess you mentioned you're meditating currently. How long have you been doing this meditation practice and how, how has that been helpful for you? You know what, when I used to, um, when I was a professional football player, I when, when some of the guys would mention meditation, 
uh, meditating, sorry, in, in training. I used to tell them to fuck off. I thought I couldn't think of anything worse. I used to think, <laughs> how, boring to, how boring to meditate. And then when I checked into rehab, they um, put that into my routine. And, you know, I like, I used to do yoga when I was playing because um, I think it's very good for athletes with their flexibility. So we used to do a bit of yoga. Um, and so since I've retired, I did, I do meditation. I'm actually meeting a great person on Wednesday next week. He's, um, he's involved in a record label, um, called Defected, which is a lot of house music in Ibiza. So I just surround myself with amazing energy. So he's like, he's called me up. He's like, look, we need to meet up. We need to go and meditate near this, um, lake or whatever he is. He goes, we need to jump in this lake because it's freezing cold water. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to go and meet him next week. So we go and meditate. And I, I believe what you just said there was routine. If you feel like shit in the morning, and you want to stay in bed, don't. Get out of bed and just have a shower and just keep continuing to go towards. Because what I always say is that if you keep running toward, if you keep running away from fear, the fear gets bigger and bigger and bigger. If you keep going towards it, it'll get smaller, which then help you then progress. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that. Because I, I think you mentioned before you used to have some distraction techniques like using Legos, but what you're saying right now is ultimately you don't want to necessarily always distract yourself from the disturbing thoughts or those disturbing feelings you want to face them head on and accept them that's what kind of mindfulness practice truly is and that's what meditation is an extension of mindfulness um, or the ultimate mindfulness practice if you will so um, as kind of incorporating all these things you mentioned you came out of retirement and also getting your competitive juices going again are all these things have they helped you be at a better place in combination with no longer drinking alcohol yeah, I think so. I think um, I surround myself with a lot of different people now where, you know, I go and see my uh, very trusted friend, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I feel low. We'll go for a coffee and he's a lot older than me. So we just share different um, thought processes and he's like 60 really. So he's kind of like, you know, an uncle figure to me maybe or uh, along those lines. And he's just like a great person. He just gives me great advice. Um, I think... I just practice to be, to be better. I still make a, a shitload of mistakes every day. Like we all do. I just don't, I don't, I don't really think about them too much. I, my overthinking doesn't last as long as it used to. So, because before I think we create so many scenarios in our minds that they're not even real. And we just spent about four hours on bullshit. So I just try and stop myself at that point, then go and do something else and just continue with, you know, different things that way. What you said there about spending like four hours a day thinking about bullshit or random stuff. That's the most common thing I always hear when people who've been meditating for a while, they come to realize I do spend way too much time thinking about all these random scenarios and 99.9% .9 of the time, none of that stuff comes true. So people spend a lot of time, uh, wasted energy and, and emotions and feelings doing stuff like that. So I just wanted to highlight that. Yeah. So have these, uh, these various practices, the, uh, the meditation, um, the mindfulness, and the various things you do to kind of stay focused, um, in what ways did you feel they, they helped you in your performance on the field? To be quite honest, I've obviously retired for two years and then I've just recently gone back. I, I think when I, with the mindfulness, it just allowed me to just sit with my thoughts a lot better. I think if I was still, um, playing at the high level that I was before I think it would have helped me you know a whole lot more um but I always I always believe that things happen for a reason so I'm on this journey I'm at the point where I need to mm -hmm. be in my life right now and I'm now going back and I've started to play semi-professional football and 
as you just mentioned just there, where my competitive edge is coming back out of me. Um, but again, it goes back to the point where, say if I miss a shot, I don't dwell on it. I don't think about it because I don't give a fuck. Whereas before I might have thought about it a little bit too much. Whereas now I've done that on the pitch. Let's leave it there. I'm going to go home and be as happy as I can be or not think about that so much. So I think so. that's where that plays a huge part for me. Got it. Yeah, no doubt, man. We, we, uh, we call that resilience. You know, that's um, that, that mental flexibility, you know, that ability to, to sort of just lock in and focus on what you, you need to be focused on and the things you can't control. You're able to kind of filter out those distractions, right? And um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's yeah. what we, that's what we, um, me and my partner at, at the Crystal Matrix, we try and focus on mental resilience, what you said there, because when mental health is, is spoken about, people get a little bit scared. Whereas you, if you mentioned like mental resilience and coming from a different place, then, you know, it, it'll be a lot better for people. Because I think, as we mentioned, there's a lot of stigma surrounding mental health and people think, oh, they're down and out because they have mental health problems or they're this and that. But I believe that we all go through stresses in life with, with depression or at some sort of, um, in time. Um, maybe people just don't know about it. It's just because, you know, they've managed to get through a little bit easier than other people and so on. But we're all very different. I think in anything with mental health, whether it might be that or addiction, is that when we hit rock bottom, every rock bottom is different because yeah. we're all not the same. Absolutely. Uh, and building off that, so you, you and psychotherapist Ella McChrystal have teamed up and started the Crystal Matrix. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? what it motivated you to start it and what it's really about just for anyone. Cause I think a lot of our fans would be interested in the crystal matrix. Yeah. So I met Ella um, a long time ago and she mentioned we met some conference um, when I retired and I loved the, what she was about her energy and what she was coming from in terms of um, the psychotherapy side of things. And so she's uh, mentioned she created a course um, and she wanted me to go through it which I've done the course myself and she asked for my views on it from a male's um, standpoint because it was pretty aimed towards females, I would have said before, but now it's just literally for everyone. Um, so we wanted to create an online course because she asked me, why didn't I speak about my problems? And I said, because I didn't feel like I wanted to speak to someone face to face. So we created the online courses because you can help yourself from at home. Um, you we don't know and seize everything it's just purely on focusing your, what is the root of your problems your trauma you've gone through and your inner child and the goals that you can set so it's not only just talking about what you've been through before but it's focused on the future and what you can control now because i think a lot of counselors that you see they keep bringing up the shit in the past before and i don't necessarily think that that's always the best thing it's about moving forward it's right i'm in shit now how can i get moved forward and, and so on so that's why we've created these platforms we've also got um children's courses out as well because as i mentioned before it's about being proactive and, and getting to the the root of the problems which more often than not and i don't want well i don't mind saying it, it it comes from our parents and that's why we have a lot of problems when we get older in life is because we haven't uh, managed to get to, to the problems beforehand. So we've created these online courses and they're going, ex they're going extremely good. well. And, and we, we want to just keep helping as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I really like that as an available resource because I think ultimately one of the first steps into helping become like mentally fit or mentally healthy is, is developing awareness. And 
that you guys have created a program where an individual just can log on and, and get these courses and go through them by themselves. That I think helps ease the entry into, into becoming more self-aware and more mentally fit instead of having to necessarily, like you said, meet with someone face-to-face can be a little intimidating. It could be intimidating just asking for help. So I think that the fact that you guys have a program that someone can just kind of go through on their own, is, it can be really helpful. Yeah, for sure. I think what we've created and Ella's amazing and, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get these courses out there for, for people. And as I mentioned before, it's 24 pounds. So I don't know what that is in, in dollars, but um, it's, it's, it's very cheap for what you're, what you're getting in terms of, because you, you, you know, you can pay hundred, $150 an hour. Whereas like with this, you get a, a lot more worth and you're getting to the root of the course because when I've seen counselors before, they were just happy to take my money and I didn't really get any help from it to be quite honest, because I felt how the fuck can you advise me how to play in front of thousands of people when you you're not in my shoes? It's completely different. So I could, I could only relate to people who's yep. been through that. Absolutely. And as uh, I think Armin and I both attested this, we we've done therapy or we're, we're also therapists as well. And it's ultimately not, you're not helping um, the individual you're essentially just equipping them with the tool so they can help themselves. You're, you're almost like their guide or their coach. You're not, you're not there to just give them solutions. You're there to help them find the solutions right. for themselves. So we can definitely attest to that. And by the way, uh, so it's, that's 30 us dollars. Um, hey, it's very, a quick translation. Yeah. I think that just gets you um, some fries in LA. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad at all. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It might be more expensive for a big Mac and fries out here. In LA. <laughs> So Ben, you want to bring us home, sir? Ah, let's do it. I mean, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, the last last thing I want to hear is you got you've lived definitely a very interesting and substantial life. That goes without saying. Um, what is the coolest moment you've had as a professional footballer? Would you say the coolest? Um, I think I have a few. I'll name a few. Um, Definitely playing at Old Trafford because I was a Man United fan growing up. Oh, and wow. my middle name's George Best, by the way. I don't know if you guys are familiar with George Best, but he was a legend for Man United. So, um, and he's signed my birth certificate. So that's not bad. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> so um, I think playing at Old Trafford in the Premier League at 17, 18 years of age, making my making my debut for Wales because I was the youngest ever player at the age of 17, which was, I replaced Ryan Giggs, who was my footballing hero growing up. So I managed to take his youngest record um, before Gareth Bale obviously became the youngest player. Um, and then probably be involved at, at the European Championship with Wales in 2016 is, is going to be up there for me. You guys made the semi-finals that year, didn't you? Yeah, we made the semi-finals, but Cristiano Ronaldo decided to turn it on, uh, as he usually does, you know. Yeah. Hey, if you're gonna if you're gonna lose yeah. anybody, I mean, yeah, he's exactly. not too bad, right? <laughs> yeah, he's not so bad. No, he's not so bad. Where do you stand on the Messi Ronaldo debate? I'm a Messi fan all day long. <laughs> and you were a striker cool. yourself, or what position did you play? Yeah, so I was, um, yeah, I was a winger. I, I used to play striker as a young kid, but okay. front three, if played, you know, four three three, I'd be one of the front three. Nice. And I imagine, just kind of based off our conversation, that you you're the type of player that likes to get a little dirty, likes to you play with a lot of high energy. Um, you like to talk smack or, or how, what, yeah, how did you yeah. play? Oh, I'd probably, definitely more like to talk yeah, smack. Yeah. I, I would talk absolute shit and then just wind <laughs> everyone up. But 
I was never one to like, you know, crunching, crunching tackles. I was all about, you know, creating chances for my teammates or scoring goals and, and so on. So that was all more about the flary side of things rather than, you know, the dirty, the dirty tackles. Yeah. The, the Russell, the Russell Westbrook of uh, soccer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the ultimate team player. Awesome. No doubt. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you having you on, man. So where can our listeners find you on Instagram and then find more about this? Matrix. Yeah, so my Instagram is David Cottrell 11 and on my bio is the Crystal Matrix. If not, you can go on uh, crystalmatrix.com and there's all different various things on the shop on there where you can buy little workbooks for the children, which is very, very cheap. You can get the courses for the children as well from under the age of 11. Um, you obviously need to be occupied by parents. If you're above 11, then you you know it's pretty easy for them to to be able to do it themselves above 16 is obviously then it goes into the adults courses which um it's all on all on the online anyway awesome i'll definitely head over to his instagram page because you got a lot of powerful messages on there i really i really enjoyed scrolling through there yesterday yeah this has been so much this has been so much fun Uh, thank you very much i just learned so much today hey if you um if you go into a new series of these um episodes i don't want to be number 45 i need to be number one on the next one okay (laughs) <laughs> for sure <laughs> love it you got it you got it you got it i think you're our first footballer how's that hey i'll there take it am i the That's first right. one with, with no hair um i think so <laughs> so i think so you're the first you're, you're the first footballer yeah perfect i'm happy <laughs> love it man right, that's 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 what it's all about Thanks for staying up late with us. Thank you. That's a waste. Thanks for having me. Great meeting you. All right. Thanks, Thanks David. David. Right. Take care, guys. All right. <laughs> bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was that went really really well, Mike. Yeah. Yeah.